Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the news section. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered. I'm your host, Dramarty Edelman from Fox Chase Cancer Center. With me today, I have Dr. Lynette Scholl and John Longshore. Dr. Scholl is an associate professor of pathology at Harvard Medical School and an associate pathologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Dr. Longshore is director of molecular pathology at Carolina's pathology group, Atrium Health, Carolina's healthcare system. I should note that Drs. Scholl and Longshore co-chair the IASLC Pathology Committee Molecular Pathology Working Group, and today we're going to discuss tumor mutational burden. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered. For both of you, this month, your ISLC committee published new guidelines on TMB in the Journal of Thoracic Oncology. Let's ask for a summary of that paper and why it is important to share with the oncology community, uh, Dr. Scholl. Yes, well, hi. Um, thank you, Dr. Edelman, and thanks to the ISLC for inviting John and I to come on and discuss our, I would say, perspective on TMB. I think to be clear, this was not necessarily a um, Institute of Medicine directed guideline document. It really was uh, an opportunity for us, principally from the pathologist and molecular pathologist perspective, to provide some insight into this very rapidly evolving field. We were very fortunate to get some very valuable input from leaders both in the bioinformatics as well as the clinical oncology fields to provide their perspectives on this evolving biomarker as well. You know, basically what we wanted to do with this was to lay the, uh, the groundwork for where we are in terms of clinical trial data supporting or potentially refuting the use of this as a biomarker. Uh, provide some background on what exactly TMB is biologically and technically, how we actually assess it. Uh, Again, principally, that would be through uh, high-throughput next-generation sequencing. And then finally, to understand how we can do better as laboratories to harmonize the use of tumor mutational burden as a biomarker in clinical practice and where we actually think this could be used in the clinical space. John, do you want to add anything? Oh, thank you, Lynette. I think that's a, a wonderful summary of, of what the uh, manuscript really was designed to do. There are as many questions as there are answers related to tumor mutational burden, and there's been a tremendous amount of progress in the peer-reviewed literature about the clinical applications, potentially of TMB, but very little information developed from the laboratory perspective or the pathology perspective of how you implement TMB and some of the technical considerations that are involved in its use as a biomarker. So both of you are pathologists. So you're not actually, you know, making the decisions based upon TMB. But, you know, was there a consensus reached on whether TMB is, how would I put it, ready for prime time? Should it be employed for, you know, clinical decision making at this time? I think we could definitely say there was no consensus. I think at best, we, we're in a, a state of really still describing the state of the field uh, right now. I, I think there's still questions about whether this is a, 
truly a purely predictive biomarker, whether there is some data to suggest that we're, we're looking at some intrinsic biology of the tumors that may have prognostic implications, and there's, there's some conflicting data about those two points. I think you know, one, one of the, the challenges, of course, is that this, this biomarker is, is coming a little bit later to the game compared to the other dominant biomarker in this space in terms of selecting patients for immunotherapy. Of course, PDL1 immunohistochemistry is the major biomarker we use in the lung cancer space. You could potentially argue that TMB is actually not that much worse of a biomarker than PDL1, but it, it has to, I think, overcome that hurdle of, of really demonstrating that it has some added value over PDL1. And, and we may be accruing some data to suggest that, but I don't think we're quite there yet to use, that, to use it as certainly a standalone biomarker. So, so my understanding, which is limited, you know, based on, you know, what I've seen from the published trials is that it's not that one is necessarily better than the other, but that perhaps they're complementary to each other. So, you know, John, do you want to comment on that? Right. I think really what we are trying to determine is what makes a tumor immunologically hot, so to speak, so that it would be a potential target for immune oncology therapeutics. It remains to be seen if this is going to be PDL1 as a standalone biomarker. Are we going to be talking about MSI high tumors or tumors with deficient mismatch repair? And where does tumor mutational burden factor into this? Or is a combination of these, along with looking at the tumor microenvironment, going to be what we ultimately use to predict if a patient's tumor uh, is eligible for response to immune oncology therapy? Yeah, I think the point that John just made is an important one. And and while there these appear to be complementary in, in many analyses, you also see some level of correlation between PDL1 expression levels and TMB. So so while they are somewhat related, they they likely have a complementary role. But I think just as John said, when you begin to actually combine biomarkers, including really intrinsic biomarkers to the tumor, and then those that are more uh, specific to the host and the host immune system, you probably begin to arrive at a much more predictive overall biomarker than you do by any one of these, looking at any one of these in isolation. So, so one of the issues with TMB is that, you know, even how to measure it has been quite uh, controversial, you know, things started with, you know, whole exome sequencing and then went to show that the panels with the 400 plus genes was the way to go. And then I saw data regarding, uh, you know, more limited panels and, you know, lately the question of whether tissue or circulating free DNA. So was any consensus reached as far as the ideal approach to measurement of TMB, you know, with current technologies, or for that matter, whether there's a cutoff or whether those cutoffs are different depending upon which method is used? Yeah, so um, again, I don't know if we could say if we've, we've reached any sort of consensus, and, and that really is uh, one of the goals of, of some of the international efforts around harmonizing many of the available platforms that are that are out there and and um, at this point there's some some major efforts being put forth by friends of cancer research as well as QUIP and um, in Europe looking at ways that we can harmonize TMBs getting calculated from uh, various targeted panels and those could include panels that are paired tumor normal as in you're, you're looking both at the patient's tumor as well as the paired blood at the same time and, and subtracting out potential germline variants. 
That also includes trying to, to harmonize tumor-only panels, and these can include both, of course, tumor and germline variants being reported out. And of course, this is getting harmonized against whole exome sequencing data. As you suggested, generally speaking, the larger the panel size, it seems the more uh, the more accurate and more precise your ability to to estimate the TMB uh, will be. But I think the jury may still be out in terms of our um, ability to effectively harmonize across uh, across different panels, according to some of the efforts that are being done right now. I mean, I, I, I personally think that one of the major challenges we're going to face is defining a cut point, especially right now, proposed cut points around, say, 10 uh, I think it's really difficult to consistently assign a case, a high versus low TMB around a cut point like that. And, and you'll see this in a lot of the harmonization data that it's just ex- extraordinarily difficult to, to really uh, attain kind of a precise level of assignment at that level. When you get to higher uh, TMB cut points, so I think hitting maybe 15 or 20, I think you start to see uh, an ability to um, discriminate between the low and the high much more readily than at these more intermediate levels. Uh, and John, I don't know if you have any other thoughts about, about that particular challenge. I think harmonization is, is something that is going to be critical for us to determine if tumor mutational burden really is going to be a viable biomarker. You know, if, if I ran an assay for TMB in my lab and tried to compare it to a, a Keras or a Tempus or a Foundation data, we would all come up with different values, likely. That would be the same if there was one run in, in Lynette's laboratory. So the studies that have been done so far on tissue, you know, where we are looking at cutoffs between 10 to 15 mutations per megabase, and then if we look at uh, circulating tumor DNA, where we may have an even wider range of cut points that have been used in studies from as few as six mutations megabase up to, up to 20, there really remains a lot of work to be done on standardization. And until we can standardize and be able to make an apples-to-apples comparison of one assay to another, it's going to be really difficult to be able to parse the data sets to determine the viability of tumor mutational burden as a viable. Yeah, and, and the one other thing I would just say about the cell-free DNA is, in many cases, we don't actually know exactly what we're measuring. You know, the, tum- the tumor tissue alone is not perfect, especially if uh, you're not subtracting out normal. But with the cell-free DNA, we're, we're recognizing that there's a pretty substantial number of patients who have contribution from clonal hematopoiesis. And of course, this is, uh, this is clonal myeloid uh, cells generally that are contributing some level of mutational rate to those variants that are getting picked up in the blood. And, and, and you know, to be fair, those probably shouldn't be incorporated into uh, a TMB metric. But you know, some of this may ultimately just be, be driven by what we see in terms of outcomes data in uh, the trials that are increasingly incorporating TMB as a biomarker for, uh, for patients how, who are how, being treated. How, how common is uh, clonal uh, myelopoiesis? I've heard a lot about that lately. Yeah. Obviously, that raises you know, issues uh, not only for us, but for our hematologist colleagues or the possibility that there's a second malignancy running around. Yeah, the, the frequency of seeing clonal hematopoiesis increases uh, as the patients get older. So off the top of my head, I don't want to give you a, a, an erroneous number. Suffice it to say that you know when you start looking at patients who are in their 70s and 80s, the frequency of seeing uh, clonal hematopoiesis is quite substantial. I would say it's probably well over 10% of patients, uh, if not higher. And that, and that, of course, is utilizing older technologies 
that may not be as sensitive as some of the uh, of the technologies that we're seeing today in use in the cell-free space. So I, I personally wonder if the rates of finding these clonal uh, processes in the blood is actually going to be higher than we have historically thought, uh, just because our, our technology is just getting better. So, you know, what's the status these days as far as the, you know, basic science as to how well TMB correlates with actual tumor antigenicity? Because, you know, let's face it, it's an indirect measure. I mean, at least to my way of thinking about this, TMB sort of figures out how antigenic the tumor is. PDL1 is is it using that mechanism to evade uh, the immune system? So and so there's obviously a complementarity to that. But PDL1 is a direct measurement, while TMB is an indirect measurement. So where's the science with that? Yeah, it's definitely a surrogate marker for antigenicity. And, you know, I, you know in theory, I guess in theory, if you, you just play the numbers, if you're making a whole bunch of new antigens because you're making a lot of mutations, the, the chances are at least some of those are likely to be presented and to actually trigger an immune response. But again, it's not, a, as you said very nicely, it's not a direct measure. There, there's data, which actually has been around a while, which I think keeps getting uh, validated in, in different data sets, but largely retrospectively, to suggest that if you combine tumor mutational burden as well as really looking at the clonality of those variants within that population of kind of highly mutated tumor, um, that that actually can be helpful uh, predictively. So if, if, if your tumor really has a high burden of kind of clonal mutations as opposed to it's creating a whole bunch of subclones at, at a low level, uh, so the former situation is better in terms of predicting response to immunotherapy than, um, than the latter situation. But again, it's a relatively indirect measure. My sense is that uh, at least a lot of the bioinformatics efforts to infer antigenicity from the mutational uh, space uh, are... are have not been going super well, right? Like there's, to, to date, uh, as far as I've seen, there's not been a really compelling uh, study that's indicated that we can confidently predict the, the antigenicity of, uh, of some of the peptides that are being created uh, it kind of in routine clinical practice. John, any thoughts on that issue? No, I was just thinking to myself while Lynette was commenting, this is certainly a situation where it seems like the more information we obtain, the less we seem to actually know about what is... Uh, happening from the immune response inside a cell. So there's certainly a tremendous amount of work that remains to be done. Okay, well, let's now, you know, talk about what's literally on everybody's mind, which is COVID-19, because pretty much everything in medicine and life these days is, you know, COVID-19 all the time. You know, what about the pathology of COVID-19? And, you know, but first, you know, how have the two of you each coped professionally during the pandemic? And, you know, what roles are you playing within your institutions during this crisis? I know that at my institution, you know, we stood up our own testing uh, uh, regime and, you know, kind of, uh, you know, ended up steering some resources into that so that we could continue our patient care. John, how are things been going down there? Well, it certainly has been a professionally busy time for uh, for me over the last few months as uh, mentioned earlier, I direct our molecular pathology efforts for the system. So as part of that, in addition to doing the molecular oncology work, I'm also over our molecular uh, infectious disease. So COVID testing fell uh, under my umbrella professionally. It was uh, certainly very frustrating early on when we could see the pandemic coming, but 
as you may recall, early on, individual labs or medical centers were not allowed to do their own testing. We had to rely upon the CDC or state health departments. And it was not until the 29th of February that individual labs, medical centers, and high-complexity labs were actually able to set up their own testing. And I would say from that time on, it has been uh, extremely busy because in addition to the traditional volume of testing we have for patient care uh, across genetics, oncology, infectious disease, and other things we do transplant-related even in my laboratory, we've had a tremendous volume of of COVID testing, of RNA-PCR-based COVID testing to deal with. So it's been very challenging from a a staffing and a uh, workflow standpoint for us. Lynette, how are things um, up at Harvard? Yeah, so uh, I, I would echo John's experience. Our, our lab similarly uh, bit off a, a, a pretty big effort to bring the COVID testing in, faced very similar challenges initially. We actually split our testing uh, with the microbiology laboratory. So some of the testing is is pointed towards uh, our molecular lab, which, like John, has uh, a lot a large oncology repertoire that it um, that it supports, but also does some of the uh, molecular uh, microbiology as well. So it was uh, it was an interesting, um, very fluid time of uh, completely shifting the way the laboratory was being staffed, both from a technical staff as well as professional staffing. Uh, we're obviously trying to maintain distancing uh, that necessitated a lot of uh, changes in the way the, um, the the technical staff was working in shifts. We had one dedicated pathologist who was handling all of the COVID testing uh, that at our institution. That was Neil Lindemann. Uh, and the rest of us essentially were, were tasked with keeping the rest of the service uh, afloat. <laughs> so, so we all became somewhat more generalists because overall the volumes were going down for many of the other test types. Uh, so there was essentially a single pathologist who was on to, to handle a lot of the, uh, the usual day-to-day testing that would typically be handled by two people. And then again, one, one dedicated person to handle all of the COVID testing and troubleshooting and development of new assays, which was happening at a relatively rapid pace. Uh, as John uh, indicated, we were uh, only able to start uh, really R&D and validation of, of testing in, in early March. And it turned out that first assay that we were able to get from the CDC didn't work all that well and needed, needed some tweaking. Um, and then finally, when some commercial options came available, we, we, we shifted our whole operation over to, to different, uh, different platforms. So did you experience any, I mean, other than the obvious regulatory roadblocks, which got lifted with the FDA uh, changes, um, were there problems with testing supplies, procedures, reagents? I mean, did you have any particular roadblocks and how did you address those? Yeah, that, that certainly has been very challenging, and this has been a 24-7 group effort uh, across my medical center and others. This is not something, obviously, that is limited to one area of the world, but it's a global pandemic, and we all have the same supply chain. So it's been a, a very large effort to obtain testing supplies and reagents, both for viral RNA isolation from the coronavirus to reagents to perform the test. There's been a tremendous uh, shortage in back orders on laboratory plasticware, personal protective equipment, you know, not only is needed by frontline providers, but also laboratory personnel that are performing the testing. There has been a global shortage of collection media or transport media for viruses, and as well as uh, 
flock swabs that we use for uh, nasopharyngeal collections. So interestingly, many of the uh, supplies, plasticware and swabs that, that are used were produced in, in China and also in Italy, which were two of the early areas that were hardest hit by the pandemic. So uh, it certainly has been a challenge both for uh, lab administration and pathology and our materials management to constantly source and obtain testing supplies that we need for patient care. Yeah, we were witnessing, I think, at a nationwide level, scrambles to validate alternative transport media, saline, dry swabs, uh, and 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 the, we have a a listserv that a lot of the molecular pathologists are quite active on. Uh, it's called the Champ listserv, and that was, you know, we had messages flying through that. Um, probably every minute there were messages coming through about how to how to validate a new way to uh, to transport these specimens um, and, and pulling out uh, data from years past about, you know, can you use a cotton swab, for instance, as a, as a nasal pharyngeal swab? It turns out you can't because it, it will inhibit PCR. But it was, it, you know, very interesting and dynamic time as people were trying to figure out uh, alternative ways to the standard approaches to, to doing their testing. So I take it life has sort of settled down a little bit in terms of the... Uh, direct viral testing, but now the big question is, you know, is there a role for serologies? Um, You know, have you stood up tests for that? How are you interpreting them? What are you doing with your staff? Uh, Lynette? Yeah, our uh, immunology lab has indeed rolled out uh, serologies. Uh, There's a tremendous amount of effort around serology testing, in particular, I think, looking more closely at point-of-care type of serology testing, so linear flow type of assays, uh, like a pregnancy test type of model of testing that you can do uh, very easily at home or you can do easily, say, in the um, occupational health office, et cetera. At this point, to my knowledge, those are not being widely employed, at least in our, um, in our center. We've been relying very much on the more central laboratory-based approaches to, uh, to the serology testing. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with those in terms of broader commercial, uh, commercial use. I think there's a lot of concern about uh, the performance of many of the existing serology assays. In particular, I think the, the positive predictive value of, of the results from some of these assays is of concern, especially when we're dealing with very potentially very low rates in a general population. So, uh, so, so uh, to my knowledge, we're not doing universal serology testing um, in our local institutions. Uh, John, how about you? We have a very, very similar setup here in, in the uh, Carolinas. We have uh, three serology assays that we are using. I think they have not had the amount of clinical play that we initially thought they would. We uh, were initially thinking that we could use uh, serology for uh, determining patients' exposure in screening employees. And um, now really its, it's use is limited to convalescent serum and actually being able to see if a, a patient has been exposed and has antibodies against COVID-19. One thing that we really don't know is, you know, what type of antibody titer is needed to be protective. And that's been a big challenge for us. So really, I think the serology testing started out as a bright shining star that everybody thought was going to really uh, make life easier for those of us that uh, were doing the RNA-based uh, virology testing and take some of the clinical burden off of our laboratories. And that really hasn't been the case to date. For, for the serologic testing, uh, is it uh, looking for IgG or IgM? You know, based upon what you're seeing so far, 
how far out from symptoms uh, for a patient or for that matter, you know, what would you do with an asymptomatic individual? Any ideas or where you're going with this? It seems to be uh, very similar to what we see with other viruses. Uh, you know, with uh, IgG seems to be the go-to test. Interestingly, uh, some of the assays look at IgG, IgM, and IgA combined. IgA certainly uh, has a role to play in this infection because of the, the location of the infection. There are many different assays uh, available that look at them, and it seems to be uh, following the roadmap of you know two weeks post-exposure, certainly three weeks post-exposure, you would expect to see a patient have antibodies. Uh, Blent, do you have something else to add uh, based on your experience? Yeah, not, not much. I would say that IgG and IgM seem to be the two uh, target antibodies that we're looking at with most of our assays. You know, it's been pretty interesting, and I think John already alluded to this. It's been particularly interesting in the patients where we maybe are missing the positive viral RNA result. So they may come in with suspicious symptoms, but uh, they may be beyond the point where we're actually still able to detect the virus, at least in the mesopharyngeal swabs. Uh, there's some evidence we may be able to see it in the lower respiratory tract at a later date than we're seeing in the NP swabs. But then even in those patients, we may not, we may not actually detect it. Uh, and ultimately, the serologies may be the thing that help uh, to clinch a diagnosis if those ultimately come back positive, as John suggested, two to three weeks uh, uh, later. To go back a second, as far as the, you know, the direct viral testing, have you looked at you know, oropharyngeal versus nasopharyngeal? Because you know, the nasopharyngeal, I understand, is a relatively uncomfortable test and not what people are as familiar with. Do you have any experience with that? Well, I know there's a number of labs that have validated saliva uh, as an alternative mm-hmm. to the nasopharyngeal. Uh, John, I'll let you weigh in further, but I, I, do, I do suspect that there may be a little bit of, uh, of a time discordance, as in you may see the nasopharyngeal swab uh, show up positive first and the saliva come out come positive maybe slightly later, but I'm not sure how much data there is on that. John, do you know? Right. And this, this certainly has evolved over time. In the, the early days of COVID-19 testing, in, in the first few weeks of March, when we started local testing, it was not unusual for us to get three samples. We would get an NP swab, an OP swab, and a sputum sample from a patient. Uh, then we evolved to really only looking at NP swabs. And now times are changing, and we are looking at mid-turbinate swabs and nasal swabs as, as the primary samples that, that we are receiving because they can often be self-collected by a patient and we have reduced personal protective equipment needs for our own personnel with, with nasal swabs and nasopharyngeal swabs versus a full NP collection due to the potential uh, to aerosolize the virus. So there is quite a bit of data, very much as we see with TMB, there's quite a bit of data that is all over the place with the sensitivity and specificity for the different uh, sample types that can be used for uh, looking for COVID-19 infections with RNA-based PCR. So, you know, we've obviously all been adjusting rather quickly. And, you know, the only thing that has been constant has been the change. Um, And clearly, pathologists have had a growing role in integration in lung cancer care. And as part of IASLC is a multidisciplinary organization. And, you know, since this virus is uh, very much a thoracic disease, um, you know, I'd be interested in seeing what are your, you know, feelings about where everything is going? You know, are we ready to deal with, let's say, COVID, you know, 2021? <laughs> it's terrifying. 
Uh, you know, I thought there's just so there's such such tremendous uh, uncertainty still. I think about what what exactly is happening um, in the national and global populations re- regarding COVID, and and I you know here in the United States certainly, I think we see a lot of quite recently very alarming news about the rates of of COVID really increasing in many areas where where it was initially thought to be uh, present at very low levels or or to be under control. So, you know, I, I think at least as an institution, uh, we've been tested once and have demonstrated uh, an ability to uh, really repoint our resources to uh, address the outbreak. I would say here in Boston, we, we were hit pretty hard, but uh, not as hard as some other areas. Um, so we, we certainly weren't tested to the level that, for instance, New York City was. But at least, at least we have a lot of infrastructure now in place, including uh, regarding the testing and, and just processes uh, that we can, we can roll out, I think, very quickly as need be in, in the coming months. And hopefully it'll be restricted to the coming months and not the coming years. John, yeah, and, thoughts? Yeah, add, adding on to what Lynette said, it certainly uh, will be a challenging time, particularly as we move into the fall, which is traditionally our respiratory virus season, you know, fall and winter, uh, if, if we continue to see COVID, which we fully expect uh, to do. One thing that I think has really uh, helped medical care and, and helped both academic and community-based medical centers is the ability of pathology and laboratory medicine to be quite nimble in uh, developing tests and setting up tests to respond to emerging uh, needs. And this is something that we're trained to do. It's something that we will uh, continue to do, whether it was 2009 uh, H1N1 or uh, COVID-19. We really don't know what uh, the future years hold, but we will be here and be ready to respond as needed. Well, thank you both uh, for your time and for what you're doing uh, for thoracic oncology and the development of new assays to guide our uh, treatments uh, for lung cancer, as well as for your efforts with this uh, virus, which has uh, preoccupied all of us uh, those last few months. Hard to believe that this all really began uh, for us in the United States on March 1st. The world has changed and Thanks to you for your adaptability. So with that, um, any parting thoughts or comments? No, thanks. Uh, I think just thanks very much for this, uh, this opportunity. And, and John, thanks for all of, uh, of your great insights. Well, uh, thank you, Lynette. And thank you, Marty, for the opportunity to participate in the podcast today. It's been my pleasure. Well, thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Visit the news section on iaslc.org for more Lung Cancer Considered podcasts. And please like your favorite episodes on SoundCloud and share them with your friends and colleagues.